You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Please remain standing. Today's word is taken from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 30, and you can find this on page 56 of the Church Bible. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbour nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat meat. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day and on another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done on those days except for preparing what people need to eat. You may do only that. You are to observe the festival of unleavened bread because on this very day... I brought your military divisions out of the land of Egypt. You must observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent statute. 
You are to eat unleavened bread in the first month from the evening of the 14th day of the month until the evening of the 21st day. Yeast must not be found in your houses for seven days. If anyone eats something, un something leavened, that person, whether a resident alien or native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. <coughs> Do not eat anything leavened, eat unleavened bread in all your homes. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what, is, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshipped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout the Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. This is the word of the Lord. All right, as I said, we're looking at, over the next three Sundays, uh, our church's identity and vision and mission. You're going to be given a uh, new publication, uh, a booklet that goes into some detail about how these um, areas of our life help shape our, our identity as a church. And so hopefully it's a good resource that we can give to newcomers so that they can learn more about how we tick. And uh, if you've been around for a while, hopefully it sort of confirms and reaffirms uh, some of what you hold dear as being part of this community. So, um, this morning, uh, identity, and um, I want to talk this morning about how an, an ancient story and an ancient symbol help shape our sense of who we are as a church. So, it was 12 years ago, almost exactly, I guess it would have been October, 12 years ago that um, I first interviewed for the job of priest in charge at the Anglican Church Caroline Springs, tax as it was called, and uh, it was a great interview. John was there on the interview panel, obviously, um, 
Ken, I think Ken's joining us via Zoom. Ken was on the, the, uh, the panel as well. And um, it was a great interview. And it was a great interview. I really enjoyed it because I knew that I wasn't going to accept the job in the first place. And so I, I highly recommend this just as an, an exercise. Uh, if you can ever go for a job interview that you don't want and are not going to accept, do it. Just, just do it because there's nothing more relaxing than stepping into a room where everyone else who's been in that room is nervous and you just walk in with nothing to fear. And so that's, that's what I did. Um, the bishop had been asking me to do it and repeatedly asking me, and in the end I just said yes because it was less annoying than being asked over and over again. But the truth was we, uh, Renee and I in India, who was uh, just about to turn one, um, we had already been flown over to Perth. We had uh, uh, interviewed for a job over there at Cottesloe Beach. We had accepted the role. We had shared with our family um, families that we were moving to the other side of the continent. And so it, it, was, it, was, it was already done. And, um, and Caroline Springs just wasn't even on the radar. I mean, literally, I'd, I'd never been here before. I don't think I even knew it was a thing. Um, and I, to be honest, I'm not sure if I'd ever crossed the Westgate Bridge before, okay? So that's, that's Renee had, in fact, she, she was a paramedic and she had done, um, she had been to university over this side of town at Vic Uni and she had done a lot of her early work as a paramedic in the western suburbs, which is exactly why she never wanted to move here because those shifts were horrific and she actually said to me um, when we were trying to figure out where to go for our ministry having done four years training in Doncaster she said to me I'll follow you anywhere um, she said she had an inkling that we might be going overseas um, maybe back to the to the US and she said I'll, f I'll follow you anywhere we're like we will go wherever God leads us but not to the west of Melbourne that's that's like the one thing we're not going to do and that was before the job even came on the radar so fateful words and um, anyhow after the the interview um, I, I obviously knew we weren't going to take the job I had an inkling that Ken um, maybe didn't want us to take the job because I remember after the interview he said to me well, you know, if we never see you again, all the best. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So um, then that night, well, I was at my mother-in-law's house. We had moved out of the church house in Doncaster, anticipating moving to WA. And so we were living at her house. I was on the, on the fold-out bed. And I just remember not being able to sleep. And just this, this nagging thought about this church in Caroline Springs and... And I, I don't want to overplay this, all right? Because I'm not, I'm not saying this was some kind of uh, prophetic vision or anything, but I just, I was consumed that very night with this idea of a, of a red door church. That, I don't know where this came from. I'd never heard of that as an, a thing. My mind obviously went to the Exodus story that we just read, the, the story of the Passover, the, the blood painted doors of the Passover, but I don't know where that came from, and it just sort of really grabbed me. And long story short, we ended up cancelling all of our plans to go and live in paradise, and uh, 
coming and living in this paradise, all right? So it's just two different types of paradise. We've come to love it here, and, you know, 12 years on, God has been very good to us. But this idea of the, the red door took hold of me, and I think it was six years into our time here that we made the, the switch and applied a name to this church, which I think, I hope, I believe wasn't a sort of change in direction, but was just a kind of aligning our name with who we already were. We had already grown to be this covenant community of people who treasured the blood of Jesus as our only hope for salvation. We'll get to more of that by the end. But I want to focus on the story itself, this ancient story, ancient symbol. You got to go like way past 12 years back to understand really the roots of our name. And you got to go like three to 4,000 years back in time. You go back to, the, to Genesis chapter, chapter 12 and you see the story there of a guy named Abram. Nothing special about him. He's married to a, a, a woman named Sarai. They're just a regular couple, regular pagan couple, like everyone else. And, and in, in, in his sort of peculiar wisdom, God comes to this very ordinary couple, comes to this man named Abram, and, and God, Yahweh, says to him, from you... I'm going to raise up a nation that's going to bless all of the nations of the earth. You're going to be the head of this family of faith which is going to spread to the ends of the earth and the purpose of your existence is going to be to bless all of my people, all of my creation. And Abram hears this as Paul tells us, he hears this and he believes it. He doesn't think, did I have some bad cheese last night or is this one of the pagan gods that I worship talking to me? He knew who God was. He trusted that he is who he said he was and he believed in this promise as outlandish as it might be. So God forms Israel out of this couple, Abram and Sarai. They become Abraham and Sarah, and from them you get Isaac, and from Isaac you get Jacob, and from Jacob you get Joseph. You might remember him, the kid with the coat of many colors. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers, which, you know, I've got brothers. It can be rough growing up, especially the middle child. Feel sorry for me. But my brothers never, you know, threatened to sell me into slavery. Maybe they had nothing to be uh, jealous about, but Joseph's brothers were very jealous of him. And so they sold him. They sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. Now, this is a theme for the whole of the Old Testament. If God's promise to bless the whole world is going to come through one family, that's a pretty vulnerable state of affairs, all right? You knock out the family, then the promise is done. God's whole plan for salvation is over. 
So Joseph being sold into slavery is a threat, and that sort of theme is repeated over and over again. But because God loves Joseph, because he has promised certain things to Joseph, he, he protects him, even after being sold into slavery in a foreign land. He blesses Joseph. He rises to power and prestige as one of the leaders of the whole nation of Egypt, the, most, the biggest superpower in the world. And he blesses both Joseph and Egypt. So that when a famine strikes the people of Israel and they're all starving to death, they, could, they go to Egypt, which God is blessing, plenty of food, and when they get there, they're received by Joseph, and rather than condemning them all to death for what they did to him, he expresses the kind of grace that we're familiar with as people who have been forgiven by God. He welcomes them, he embraces them, and then Pharaoh himself, the leader of this superpower, embraces Israel as well. He welcomes them. It's like uh, this... this um, it's, it's like kind of what we need more of in the world today. A powerful, rich, prosperous nation welcoming refugees from a, from a desperate situation. So everything's good, even in the land of Egypt, in this foreign land, under this foreign power, everything's good. But fast forward another 400 years and, and things have changed dramatically. There's a new Pharaoh. He hates the Israelites. They have been blessed by God. They've flourished in number. And like every dictator that's ever lived, every tyrant, Pharaoh is very insecure. He's very threatened by this foreign people. And so he goes about trying to trim them down a little, you know, cut them down. First way he does it is by trying to work them to death. He enslaves them, and then he gets them to work on all of these public projects that he's working on, some of which you can still see to this day in Egypt. He works them to the bone. He works them to death. And literally, like, his plan is that they will die as a result of it. He'll get stuff done, and the numbers will go down. That doesn't work, and so he loses it. He loses his mind. He's, he commits an act of insanity, and he orders all of the firstborn sons of the Israelites to be murdered, to be thrown in the river Nile. The Nile crocodiles, I'm sure, were very happy about it. The people of Israel were dismayed. This act of barbarism. There was one baby boy who was spared. His mum hid him away for, I think, about three months and then... As a last act of desperation, she put him in a basket and sent him down the River Nile, only to be picked up by the daughter of the Pharaoh himself. The irony is delicious. She picks him up, nurtures him, has mercy on him, raises him in the, ha the very household of Pharaoh. This baby boy called Moses. Fast forward another, I don't know, 80 years. Moses knows who he is, knows where he's from, and he's heartbroken that his adoptive family are treating with such oppression his own people, the people of Israel. 
He loses his mind as well when he sees an Egyptian oppressing one of his countrymen and he kills him and then has to flee. Flees out to the wilderness. He flees to a land named Midian and then I think it's at this point he's about 80. God appears to him. He appears to him in a bush that's on fire but it's not burning. And he introduces himself to Moses and says, I am. Remember? Yahweh, I am. I am the God above all other gods. Moses, you've been raised in Egypt. They have a God for everything. But I am the living God. I am the God above all gods. God says to Moses that he is the one, he is the one through which God is going to set his people free. God wants his people to be free so that they can worship him. The whole reason they live is to worship him and bless the nations around them, none of which they can do as slaves in Egypt. So he's going to set them free. He's going to do it through Moses. Moses debates with God and says, I'm no good. I'm not, I can't speak. I don't know what you're talking about. I believe that you, what you're saying is true, but I can't do it. So then he says, all right, take Aaron with you. You can be a dynamic duo and you are going to face off with Pharaoh. The rest of the whole story is a collision. Not between Moses and Pharaoh, but between God and Pharaoh. It's a collision of deities. Pharaoh who thinks he's divine and God who actually is. It's a collision. There can only be one winner. So that's where we pick it up. We'll get to the story of the Passover. So you've got God and Pharaoh facing off. Pharaoh, unrelenting, unrepentant, unremorseful, committed to keeping the people of Israel under his thumb. God's way of dealing with him to to soften his heart, to break his resolve. To bring him to repentance is by he, he sends plagues to the land of Egypt. He sends one after another, and it just it's this dance. It's like God sends the plague, and then it looks like Pharaoh might relent. It looks like he might kind of be kind of close to breaking point, and then he hardens his heart. He ref- refuses to relent. Refuses to release the people of Israel. So you work through these nine plagues and it's just the same pattern and then God sends the the tenth, the most terrible, the most tragic, the most terrifying of the plagues. Here's how it's teed up. Exodus chapter 11, verse 4 to 5. Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go through Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. 
from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones as well as every firstborn of the livestock. This is the tenth great plague sent by God to break the resolve of a sinful leader, a tyrannical overlord, an enslaver of his people. But before the angel comes... God gives his people a way out. So here's the foundation. Here's the foundation for our name, our sense of identity, shaping force for who we are as a church. Exodus 12, 1-7 says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to begin the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Just, just so you know, whenever... A nation changes the calendar to commemorate a day and makes that the new New Year's Day. You know this is a big deal, all right? This is the biggest event in Israel's history. It's celebrated to this day a few thousand years later, annually by faithful Jews. So from now on, it's like, you know, if, if our prime minister was a Collingwood supporter he was like all right from now on the first of October is the first day of the year it's a new news day and um, we would all rebel and like storm the capital and take the country back for Essendon all right so here's the t- he says tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month they must each select an animal from the flock according to their father's families One animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal. Like, don't don't just take the, the dodgy one that you're just keeping around for Christmas, all right? No, it must be the best unblemished, spotless, perfect, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. So, there's the there's why our little logo is, looks like a blood-painted doorpost and lintel. That's why we call ourselves Red Door Church. It has the advantage of being very non-threatening to people who don't understand why it's called that. It's more accessible than, I don't know, St. Augustine's of Carthage or something. There is much, much, much deeper meaning to it than just there's a, there's a red door at the front of the building. So that's the foundation. That's the first red door you read about in the Bible, but then it's a theme that's echoed throughout Scripture. Why did they do it? Why did God tell them to do this? It's kind of bizarre at one level. Like a lot of what we believe is kind of a little bit bizarre when it's, not read in context. Why was he doing this? Why? 
Exodus 12, 12 to 13. It was because of mercy. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It was an act of mercy. It was an act of salvation. The painting of the doors with the blood of a lamb was effective because God promised that it would be that way. Now, the first thing to realize, and this goes into shaping our whole identity as a church, the first thing to realize is that that this judgment on Egypt was a just judgment. All of God's judgments are. He is justice. He can't be unjust. It's impossible. It was a just judgment on Egypt. Egypt had murdered the firstborn sons of Israel, and he had the and and Pharaoh had enslaved God's firstborn son. That's how God referred to the people of Israel. He called them his firstborn son. So you pick it up in, in Exodus chapter 4, back further in the story. This is God, God makes this really clear. When he's talking to Moses, he says, You will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. This is an act of just judgment. second thing to notice is that everyone in Egypt was deserving of this judgment. All have sinned. The wages for sin is death. Everyone who's ever lived but one is deserving of God's just judgment. The only protection from that judgment was a promise from God to provide salvation. A spotless lamb, a blood sacrifice, a red door. This was God's merciful, gracious provision. The only way of salvation. Now, you might find that kind of vaguely interesting. It's kind of, at least it just like as a historical study, it's kind of interesting. But it is a little bit obscure for a Christian church to put so much weight on an old covenant story. It might seem a little bit abstract. Here's why it's not. Here's why it's so fundamental, foundational for us as believers in the Lord Jesus. Because if you fast forward a thousand years, 
You see John the Baptist, right at the beginning of John's gospel. John the Baptist, that crazy guy from the gospels. He sees Jesus. And well, let me read it to you from John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew what was going on. The Passover was an, I mean, an incredible event in human history. The fundamental event in Israel's history. Powerful. Profound. But even that event, the Passover, was only a foreshadowing. It was just a rehearsal. It was just a foreshadowing of the real Passover that was yet to come. Jesus is the Passover. Jesus' death on the cross demonstrated for all time that he is our Passover lamb. I love the way that the Apostle Peter says that he got it, obviously, growing up as a Jew, understood all of these connections that we might miss, but I want us to get them. In 1 Peter chapter 1, this is what he says. You know that you, Christians, followers of Jesus, those of you who have been saved, that you were redeemed. We're going to talk more about redemption in two weeks' time. That's bought out of slavery. It's literally what redemption is, bought out of slavery. That you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. All of those unblemished, spotless lambs were just a a prefiguring. They were just a type. They were just a shadow of the real spotless lamb that was going to be slain so that the judgment of God might pass over us. So just like Israel, just like Israel, the blood of a lamb is our only hope, friends. They had lambs, They had kids, right, like the baby goats. We have the Son of God slaughtered for our sake. That's why the door's red. Talk about identity talk about what shapes our sense of who we are as a people. Every organization really wants a strong sense of identity. It's really important if you're going to get anywhere as an organization, a strong sense of belonging that comes from a strong sense of who we are, identity. Now, the problem is it's much easier to have a strong sense of identity in any organization if, you're, if, you're, if you have a monoculture. If you have a monoculture, if, you, if your organization only admits, I don't know, 
bald 50 to 55-year-old men, you have a much stronger sense of identity because it's really obvious. This is who we are, bald 50 to 55-year-old men, right? So you can build on that. Now, our problem is we don't have, like, we don't have any two people the same in this place. Like, it's, it's, very, it's a very mixed room that I'm looking at right now. It's one of the best things about our church. There's no monoculture here. It's very multicultural, just like the kingdom of God. I love that about this church, but it does make it harder to get a, a kind of shared sense of this is who we are, this is our identity. So here's, here's where the red door helps shape our sense of identity. This is my, my, my three things to finish, all right? Here's how being red door shapes us. Number one, being red door reminds us that we deserve judgment. This is really important. We all come from different cultural backgrounds, different families of origin, different church denominations, every nation, tribe, and tongue. So what unites us? One thing is that we're all deserving of judgment. That's one thing that we can all get behind, right? When we come to the confession time at church, all of us are in on that. All of us have a place at that table. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isn't it interesting that when God judges through those plagues, he doesn't just blast the Egyptians. It's everyone. Egyptians, Israelites, livestock, All are deserving of God's judgment. So that's one thing we can get behind. I know it's not that popular anymore. But it's so important. If we're going to know who we are, we need to know first that we are liable to judgment. Deserving of condemnation. Just like the Egyptians, just like the Israelites. Number two, we deserve judgment, but we've been set free from slavery. Being Red Door reminds us that we have been set free from slavery. Do you know that? You were once a slave. But now you've been set free. Just like the people of Israel. Enslaved to, a, to an a, a oppressive, tyrannical power. Bent on their destruction. And then set free by the grace of God through redemption. That's your story too. You know, Jesus said it himself. In John chapter 8, this is what he says about slavery. Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. There we go. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does. A 
Son remains forever. So, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. Is that you? Thank you. You were a slave to sin with no hope of ever getting out from under that yoke. But the blood of a spotless lamb was shed so that you could be redeemed. Set free. Set free to worship him. Not just in the wilderness, but in every aspect of your life, all of life, all about Jesus. So here's the thing. Everyone, just look at me for a second. This is what you need to know. When you come in here, one day, if not, you know, some of you, it'll be every Sunday. Some of you, it'll just sneak up on you. When you come into this building, at some point, the accuser is going to go to work on you. The accuser, that lion who prowls around looking for Christians to devour, he'll, he'll accuse you. He'll say to you, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. This is a place for people who are actually living like Jesus and not just pretending to. How can you belong here, what you've done this past week? the kind of thing you'll say. And what you can do, right, in that moment, you can receive that condemnation and accusation because it's true. You can receive it. You're right. I'm a terrible person. I look nothing like Jesus in my day-to-day life. I've sinned. I've hurt people. I don't belong here. You can do that. Or you can see the red door and as you walk through, you take that symbol and you apply it to who you are. You make that your identity. You are no longer a slave. You've been set free. He couldn't make it any more clear. If the Son sets you free, you really will be free. So people come here, part of their identity is knowing, yes, I am a slave to sin. I know that I continually sin. There are all kinds of ways that the accuser can condemn me, but I have been set free indeed. Like, it is true. It is reality. Who I am now is not a slave, but a son. I belong here, even as I stumble through this Christian life. Nothing brings me more joy than when I speak to newcomers at our church who say one of the things that they liked about being here was not just that they felt welcome, but that they could see that they were surrounded by fellow strugglers, fellow sinners. People who were broken but holding on to the promises of God. That's who I want to be around.
me just get to my third point. I'm, I'm out of time. Being Red Door reminds us that we are all deserving of judgment. Being Red Door reminds us that we've all been set free from slavery. And being Red Door reminds us, most important of all, that it's all by the blood of Jesus. From first to last, it's all by the blood. Nothing but the blood. It's all a gift of grace. Not entitled to anything. How weird is that for us to say in our culture? The most entitled culture that's ever lived. I am not entitled to God's grace. Mercy, forgiveness, pardon, redemption, salvation, restoration. Nothing. He doesn't owe me anything. It's all by the blood of Jesus. We're going to jump back into the book of Revelation after this series. So we've got next week looking at our vision to make all of life all about Jesus. The following week looking at our mission to be a place of refuge, a place of redemption, and a place of renewal. That's the next couple of weeks. But then after that we're going to jump back into Revelation and finish it off before we get to Advent. And and. You know, as people, if you've been here through this series in the book of Revelation, you know how much Revelation is just replete with this imagery, right, of the Passover, replete with this imagery of Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb that was slaughtered for our sake. His blood is the thing that washes us and makes us white as snow. Let me just finish with a reading from Revelation chapter 5. You might remember this from a couple of months ago. It just tells us, reminds us, that everything we have here and the fundamental aspect of our identity is that we are recipients of God, God's grace by the blood and only by the blood of the Lamb that was slain. Revelation 5, 9, all of these Elders and creatures and worshippers of the Lord gathered around his throne. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, speaking to the Lamb of God. Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's our status. That's our identity. People here, representing every tribe and language and people and nation. People here only because of the purchasing power of the blood of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we want you to please really affirm this in us as a church. It's hard for us to all get on the same page because we're all so different and we come from such different places and some of us have been here for 15 years and some of us have been here for 15 minutes and it's hard, but I want you, Lord, please, by your grace, just as a gift to us, please help us to take a hold of this, this identity that you've given us. 
church names and logos, they're all, I, I don't know, I don't know how much value there is in them, Lord, except to remind us of truth, timeless truth. So I pray for each one of us, just as an, as an ordinance, Lord, as a, as a word of blessing now over this building, I pray that every single person that comes through that front door, for as long as there is a front door, whether it's red or white or black or electronic, whatever, whatever that door becomes in the future, as long as this building lasts, as long as people are gathering here to worship Jesus, I pray that you would give us this sense of identity that, yes, we are deserving of your judgment, but praise God we have been set free and it's all by the blood of the spotless Lamb. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We thank you. We praise you.